talk about. Oh, man. Uh, we bounced a couple ideas out there, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. It's going to be going back in my Twitter timeline there for a little. Um, so I know there were a couple things going on with D&D and how it was... Uh, like, for me, one of the things that I remember talking about was, like, D&D and the TTRPG system and, like, how Dungeons & Dragons through being so ubiquitous kind of just like consumed the whole ttrpg space it's mm -hmm. like the default yeah um and that there's good and bad in that i remember that was a thing uh i i can rant endlessly on my legacy setting but that is definitely very promo and up my butt and i don't necessarily <laughs> feel like opening up with that <laughs> yeah i mean i do like i remember back in the day with D D and any other like ttrpg D&D was kind of the big one, but there was also, like, Vampire had a very large share at the table, Werewolf right. players, uh, even, like, 3E, the Mutant and Masterminds, the WAD people, like, they were all Battle together. Tech was a big thing. Yeah, yeah, there was still people with, like, Palladium and Traveller and all that jazz. Riffs, I, I loved was, Riffs. I was literally just this morning, like, looking at my old Palladium books. Assuming I can even find where I put my Palladium book, I have an old Robotech Palladium. RPG oh book. yeah, like the classic that I literally can't find anywhere anymore ever again. The broken Robotech pilots. Giant pile of crap over here. Whatever, I know it's here somewhere. There it is, underneath the one shirt I literally <laughs> just took off. Yeah, like I always loved these books. Because they were so simple, yep, and just like filled with cool illustrations, and all the maps were so like yeah, They're these that were simplicity. 1980s printers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't do fancy with these, but you could make enough. It yep. was really, it opened up the idea that like I could literally like run or make my own gamer setting. I didn't even realize that was what it was planting in my head when I got this in like fifth grade. Yeah, but that's what it was. I could open something like. Man, I can draw a better map than this. I can make tables like anybody else can. Yeah. My art is nowhere near this good yet, but yeah. maybe in 20 years. And now that I'm looking back at it as an adult, I'm like, yeah, holy crap, I actually could totally do that. Mm -hmm. Which is not the feeling you get looking at a Dungeons & Dragons book. No, no. Um, where you're like, oh no, this is beyond polish. I literally, I, as a one-man creator, cannot do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved the old Rifts books where there'd be like that, those few pages in the middle that were actually like colored, they were printed on better quality paper. So you're flipping through and it's nothing but black and white, grayscale photos, and then you get to those center pages and you're like, oh, art, this is amazing. That is definitely a special time. And like, I think that's, it's definitely becoming a bit of an artifact of the past mm -hmm. because part of that is like just a general book publishing thing. Where it was just like, oh yeah, I remember I had like a copy of The Hobbit, which was just like a nice storybook. But in the middle, there's like five to six pages of the uh, of the Bakshi, the Bakshi Hobbit art. Okay. And it's just that in a beautiful color, and the rest is just black and white. And it's just because it's cheaper. Like, yeah. I, mean, I can spring for six pages of color, but the rest, if we're going to produce this on any time frame with any amount of money, it's going to be black and white, guys. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Probably soft cover. And nowadays, like, I look at the D&D books and it's like, or even like, a, like, I have a bunch of 40K books right here. And like, it's just 
hardback. All of them are hardback. All of them full color, all the way through. Mm-hmm. Even on pages that are just like pure rules where it's completely unnecessary. Like, literally, for some reason, um, like, this 40k, like, the, the Crusade section in the 40k book is, it's basically slate gray. Like, the color scheme is literally evocative of, like, cathedrals yeah. in Europe. So it's gray. But it's color. They printed the gray yep. in color. They didn't need to, but they did. Yeah. <laughs> Just to flex. Yeah, yeah, like my uh, <laughs> my Pathfinder 2E core book over there, that thing is just all solid color all the way through. Same with the, I got the Warhammer Dominion book, that thing is just solid all the way through. And I just think like, man, I buy a cartridge of ink for my printer, I print one thing and I'm like, well, that was a cool $30 to spend. Same, man. I, all the stuff I've been printing lately for Legacy has been in black and white. I literally haven't had a color cartridge in my in my printer for four years. I can't afford it. It's too much. Yeah, it's way too much. <laughs> I hate I hate the cost of ink. I wish there was a better alternative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one day maybe they'll do what they do for like uh, receipt printers and stuff like that at supermarkets, where it's just they heat the paper. That'd be lovely. Oh yeah. Until then, you know. But yeah, it, it's definitely. Uh, I definitely think that is like part of what sort of contributed to it is that Wizards of the Coast can afford, and many other like super polished companies, mm-hmm. really just Wizards of the Coast, World of Darkness, I should say White Wolf, yeah. um, and of course Games Workshop. Yeah, they have because, all the money. <laughs> right, they can literally afford to do that. They can afford to print a book that in anyone else's hands would literally not make its money back. Yeah, but they can do it knowing full well that they have such a captive audience. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, seriously. They want to, if they wanted to print their books on gold leaf and release like a hundred <laughs> of them as like a limited edition, do this. Dude, they would sell like, out in a second. <laughs> yeah, like literally, if they were like, this new edition of Warhammer 40,000 is printed on gold leaf with hand illuminated pages crafted by a monk in Switzerland. You can buy only five of these copies for the low, low price of $10,000. It would be sold out before the link got finished. Yep. Like literally they would upload the page. Their website would immediately crash and they'd have to release a apology post going, we're sorry. We couldn't keep up with demand on this highly selective item. Yep. They'd already be reselling on eBay for like $40,000. Yeah. Be scalped out immediately for, <laughs> 800 percent of the price that was already exorbitant yeah and like <laughs> and while that's you know good for them yeah great glad glad you guys could reap in so much success it does mean that a lot of indie games and also like even the term indie game mm-hmm. it's kind of loaded right yeah because you have like indie games where they have a pretty solid following like we're talking in some cases tens of thousands even hundreds of thousands of followers on twitter oh yeah like uh cobalt press exactly they're considered indie but they're really popular people love their products pretty much like the way that battletech has gone over the past couple years it kind of went underground and then reappeared and it's practically indie again Mm -hmm. except then it's it's gone from being a major publishing house to a major publishing house that realized it made its money back more than a decade ago and doesn't mind not reprinting stuff and then bought by a new company, which is another major printing house, and re-releasing all of it under new publishing. So they basically went from underground to back above ground. And everyone's like, oh, we're still discovering them. They're so cool and new. And they are. I love the Battletech stuff. But they're also effectively a major company. Yeah. 
And then you have like actual indie role playing games where it's like, my following is approximately 400 people online. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if I publish, I can sell 10 games. I'm not speaking personally. I'm definitely speaking personally. Um, I would I would love to be able to publish uh, something that's like substantial. Like I, I see people when they are like holding up their book and they're like, it's finally done. And I'm like, that's a dream come true that I would like to have someday. I just need motivation and time. <laughs> oh, I feel you. I've, I've been working on Legacy for 15 years. Oof. 15 years on off, like... In fairness, it wasn't always a, I'm going to make this a game. It started in conception, like, as a, hey, I'm playing this game with my friends on set. Like, it's a Savage Worlds expansion. Mm -hmm. Like, literally, I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to add some, like, cool mech rules onto it. I'll borrow a little from Battletech, a little from War Machine back in the day, uh, a couple other things, too. Add some mech customization. We'll have a fun time. And I realized after, like, four years of doing this for my friends, like, I have basically written a new game. Like, I literally have to go through and re-edit so much of the original Savage Worlds book that it doesn't even make sense to call it a Savage Worlds expansion anymore. <laughs> I basically rewrote the whole damn thing. And then I rewrote my rewrote, and I, I did that, like, eight times, and I realized, just, just do it as its own thing. Yeah. And I did it for fun, just as a casual, like, fun project for my friends. And I realized, like, I've literally burnt more hours on this than most folks spend on a manuscript of their life. Like, there are folks who've written their autobiography with less effort than I've done and still putting together the framework of this game. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to do it. And I'm still working on it. I'm just getting to the point where parts of it are visually workable so that I had, like, motivation. In publisher, I have the cover page of my book done. It's the first thing I did so I can be like, one day I'll hold this. It'll be a book. I'll just I'll burn 80 bucks to get a hardcover version of it. <laughs> And I'll just hold that and be like, done it. <laughs> and yeah, it's uh it it definitely is a a thing that so many indie folks struggle with, mm -hmm. for sure. Is because of the ubiquity of these major games. It's good and bad. Like you have Entities like Critical Role, as an example, which I don't know why Critical Role as a hashtag and a thing in Twitter has become even the slightest bit controversial. <laughs> I don't get it, but somehow that always manages to happen. Yeah. It... Twitter, if you're listening, I love you, but seriously, guys, come on. Um, yeah, it evokes, uh, like, CR as a hashtag, it evokes like the opposite ends of the alignment spectrum. It's like lawful good, right. chaotic evil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, and I think about it and like the, the biggest issue, really for the record, about the only issue I really have with Critical Role, I can't speak to much of their business practices. I don't follow them as such. I can't speak to their individual activities as actors because I'm not gonna lie, the, the cast is like 35 people. Yeah. I can maybe go see two movies a year. Yeah. And I wish I could say I'm a living IMDB database, but I'm not. I just know a couple of them by their action, by their act, and everything I've seen so far is good. The biggest issue I have is because Critical Role focuses on Dungeons and Dragons, and they're all such big names, their mm -hmm. success has by default contributed to the creation of DD, even more so than it was before, mm -hmm. as like the standard. 
and again, not a bad thing. Yeah. Like, but it can be when the standard is so above and beyond everything else. It's like, why do we have such bad phones half the time? Well, it's because there's only two companies really making <laughs> OSs for them, and it's basically Motorola and mm -hmm. and the iPhone. Yeah. And so, great. I hope you like either of those two, because if you don't, I have some really bad yep. news for you. And if you want to look up tabletop role-playing game, hashtag TTRPG on Twitter, and 80%, 85-plus percent of the responses... Are people using the hashtag TTRPG as a proxy solely for D&D? &D. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to them about other games, they're like, oh, you mean D&D? &D? And I'm like, no, I mean <laughs> another thing. Yeah. It's not Dungeons & Dragons. If I called it that, Wizards of the Coast would be up my ass with lawyers. Yeah. And the amount of work put into it is different. And not disparaging Dungeons & Dragons players either. But it does mean getting a foothold in that space. You have to compete with folks that will literally would rather for making like a dark modern horror game as opposed to pick up another game system, even from a major developer like World of Darkness. Yeah. They'd rather take Dungeons and & Dragons and shoehorn it into a new form. And that is a really tough like hill for creators to climb. Yeah. Yeah, that's been that's something that you see floating around occasionally. It's like D&D &D is good for dungeons and dragons it fits that fantasy narrative really well right but for sci-fi there's plenty of other game systems that are built specifically for sci-fi for like your grimdark you have systems for grimdark if you want wild west and guns or steampunk there's systems for that that work that are not 5e you might find you know systems that attach to 5e that expand on that but Ultimately, if you want to, like, if I want to play a lycanthropic werewolf game, I'm going to play werewolf. I'm going to play Vampire the Masquerade. I'm going to play Cth Call of Cthulhu if I want to lose my mind and be confused right. the whole time and then sad at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. That, that is, and I played a couple Call of Cthulhu games. Yeah, that is, that's how it goes. It's, we all start off with these fun, cute characters and then, like, three sessions and we're like wow we really just threw them into the grist mill didn't we? <laughs> like that we we made these we hand we lovingly handcrafted these characters to basically set their character sheets on yeah. fire over the course of four sessions um but yeah no agreed and like and, and the other thing too is i feel whenever the conversation gets brought up online as well again no small part i think because of the way discourse goes in the era of the internet at the moment where there's very little controlled discourse. There's very little I see. I don't necessarily agree with where you're coming from, but I can at least respect your right to have that opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, it, and it's also always married to the fact that on the same side, there's people who literally abuse that privilege and use it to do things or justify things that are truly screwed up. Like, you know, it's really hard to have to do that whole like walk the line when on one hand you have people who are like i have a slightly different opinion but it's not a big deal and then some literal raving psycho waving a nazi flag comes in from the other side goes oh, i have opinions too and they're important and you're like good god you're not this isn't the place for this go yeah. please anywhere else preferably off a cliff um and so you have that issue where i actually 
for the record, anyone listening out there, if you are the sort of person who's like, I just really like playing D and D and super familiar with the system. I'd rather just run a horror game or a fantasy game or like a, a low gothic fantasy game or a sci-fi setting or Western or whatever, but just bootstrapping something onto mm-hmm. it. You know what? That's not bad either. I'm not hating on you. Yeah. And in fact, I'm glad you care about the hobby enough to put that inordinate amount of work into it. The issue isn't necessarily that that exists. The issue is that it exists to the default of everything else. Yeah. It'd be like if someone was talking about, it'd be like if uh, Star Wars couldn't get started because someone was like, well, I mean, the Iliad is a better story. I just replaced the word sword with laser sword and horse with spaceship. And that's my thing. Like, okay, well, I guess that works. But man, you're making it really hard for new folks to make new things. Yeah. Especially since we live in an era now where, like, if you want to do something, if you want to make something, it takes money. Yeah. Unfortunately, I've been making my game out of pocket and out of spare time on and off for a decade and a half. I can tell you very safely, if I had even, like, the beginnings of seed money for an investment, I would have gotten this done in maybe two years. Oh, yeah. Hands down. Yeah. If I could have afforded to hire a team of writers, a team of illustrators, and a team of publishers to help me crank this out, I would have been, I would have literally been done probably a year into the project. Yeah, and the, the, the free time to not have to worry about financial burdens outside of your project. Right, exactly. And it's why I've spent years debating monetizing my development cycle for Legacy. Because it feels, for me, as a creative, it feels sort of wrong feels dirty uh, right yeah and like and it isn't because it's what has to happen yep. now. you really unless you are blinkered rich which great good on you if you manage to accrue that much wealth or you've managed to hold on to it you know like and you can afford to use it to leverage these projects responsibly cool if you have that kind of disposable income but the rest of us don't really have that option mm-hmm. and so whenever someone's like yeah i've released this like this 10 page black and white PDF with like maybe just one piece of cover art that's drawn with my seventh grade level art skills. That piece of PDF, that digital content, just probably like free to download or like pay what you think is worth it or like 15 bucks. That person probably put a good couple hundred hours into that at least. Like, that is, like, dissertation levels of effort, even for small one-shots. Mm-hmm. God forbid you're making a system nearly as comprehensive as D&D. Yeah. Like, that literally... Did you ever hear the story... This is a tangent, but I promise it comes back to it. Did you ever hear the story about the animation uh, known as the... Uh, it's the pop... I think it's the Popper and the Prince... Um, I think it's Popper and the Prince is what it's called. Isn't that, that's like a classic story, the Popper and the Prince. Yes. And so there was a, uh, it's something like that. So there's this, there was this animator who absolutely had this incredible vision for this animated, for this animated film based on this classic story where it's the cobbler. It's the cobbler is what it is. Um, oh, it's the shoemaker with the elves. Yeah, I think so. The Thief and the Cobbler is what it's called. Okay. Um, so The Thief and the Cobbler was, if this is the right one, yes, The Thief and the Cobbler was this brilliant, super 
animated film. This guy who did it basically did it himself. He hand animated so much of this film. So this is before the days of Disney being able to like start to use CGI. Mm -hmm. He literally hand animated every detail. Like every frame of the movie has tiled floors and tiled walls. And he accurately parallaxes them with the like with the field of view. He does thousands of trippy pieces of art. Like literally watching the footage if you can find it. It's like watching a 3D film. It's that accurate. Huh. And it's stunning. But this guy was working on this by himself effectively. He got a studio to get him money, but he basically did it all himself. And it took him like a decade plus. And eventually the studio was like, we literally can't let you work on it anymore. It's it's going to bankrupt you. And it's yeah. going to bankrupt us. We're going to take it out of your hands and give it to someone else. And it's really sad. But, like, that's a lot of the vibe I get from the indie community in role-playing game settings. I definitely feel empathy with that guy, because that was me. That yeah. is me. Still. I'm still that guy who's like, do I need to do all these things? No. Am I going to? Unfortunately, probably yes. Mm -hmm. And it's not to my betterment that I am. But, you know, it's burning a hole in the back of my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's so, almost like the, uh, the, downside, the downside are one of the downsides to being, uh, I guess, so creative, especially when it comes to storytelling, is I have, like, in my, in my homebrew world, there's, I don't know, hundreds of NPCs where I've written them maybe just a one-page backstory. But there's no reason for it because the, the, the players most likely aren't going to care what, like, the town guard dervish did for a living or where he grew up or what he's about. If they do, cool, I got it. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you could have probably just as well have, like, consulted a table and randomly rolled for his background <laughs> or improv it. Yeah. And the, the most frustrating thing when that kind of thing happens is when you spend all this time working on an NPC and lovingly crafting them. And then your players oh, I know. just don't get there yep. at all. They, I have... they just don't care. Right. Like, you, you work on this character, you introduce them, they're like, yeah, we're going to do our best to help you, and we're going to be integrated together. And they're like, that's cool. Hey, what's that What's that random seller's name? And I'm like, oh, uh, yeah. that's Bob yeah. Selleck from accounting. He sells shoes yeah. in space. And they're like, Oh, okay. We like Bob. Yeah. Hey, Bob. What are you what about? Kidnap you would take you on an adventure <laughs> for the, like the and I'm like, guys, I had a character with stats written out right here. Yeah. He was actually introducing himself, and you made me take a standard NPC and ram stats into him and a background into him, and of course, like the the other big secret that I've, the the secret that's not a secret anymore to any DM or player out there who knows the TTRPG space, is when that happens, for the record, when the players think they're being clever and like, we're going to evade all the NPCs, just grab these random schmucks. Heads up, you just change the names of those NPCs. Yeah. They're still in your party. Yep. They just Agent Smith their way into a new body. <laughs> but it's still them. You just, I had to shunt it around a little bit. Yeah. It just made me work. Who was um, that? Uh, there was someone... I don't know if it was role and role playing where they tweeted something the other day about every NPC is a changeling. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I know exactly. God, I can't. I think it was role and role yeah. playing, but I don't want to. I, I don't want right. to be wrong. But I'm just like, I, oh my god, that's brilliant. <laughs> it, I mean, it's true. Yeah. Like, it, and it's uh, I've a lot of players will sometimes be upset about uh, the way that a game sometimes will feel like a railroad. And you know what? That's a completely fair concern. Yeah. And I think that a large part of being a good GM is both allowing your players enough autonomy mm -hmm. and respecting their decision making enough where they do make a meaningful impact on your story and that's a huge part of it but also recognizing that the g the gm slash dm slash storyteller insert moniker here yeah um they have a job that is on in terms of the table exponentially more consuming of time and energy players just got to but their character for a couple of hours which for the record is really awesome and difficult to do to begin with mm -hmm. now imagine doing that for literally every person you walk into and being everything from the texture of the ground beneath your feet <laughs> to the keenness of the blades that are chopping at yeah. you and then knowing when not to do your best so you don't accidentally kill the people that are the mechanism by which you're telling a story um so when a gm does that we're not doing it to rob a player of agency. We're doing it because, practically speaking, there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. We work most of them. And when we're running these games on the f for fun on the side, yeah, if your actions have kind of maybe derailed something that I spent eight hours working, I'm going to do my best to reclaim as many of those eight hours as possible, if not in this session, in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's just a practicality. There was um, a uh, there was a D D group... I think it was on Facebook somewhere. I don't remember if it was a Ravenloft group or not, but the discussion of like railroading came up. Mm. And this uh this one gentleman had said that like um the DM nudging you towards where they want is not railroading. The DM saying, Hey, you're at the dungeon entrance. That's railroading. To literally just teleport you from one area to the area they want, that is railroading. They've given you right. no option to be like, all right, well, y'all got to go to this place. You're there. All right. Do the stuff. Yeah. It's the uh, it's the eternal struggle of the GM to be like, we do need to get to a story beat yeah. so that I can get to the story that I've... Because it, it is important to mention also that when a campaign is run, the first conversation that happens, or that should happen with any game, is the GM should sit a prospective player down and say, this is my goal. You don't even have to mention, like, what the plot... You don't need mm -hmm. to mention the plot. You don't need to do any of that. You do need to paint enough of a picture where they'll understand what you want to run, what you're going to spend a lot of energy pouring your life into. Mm -hmm. um, and you're basically asking them, hey, I'm going on a trip. This is the ticket. This is the destination. Are you interested? Yeah. So when a, a GM has story beats they want to get to, it's like it, it, it'd be like going on an itinerary on a European trip with a friend who's been setting this up for 10 years. Yes, your want of stuff to do is important, but the person who's been setting this up for a decade, maybe they, and paying for it, maybe they should be the ones who set the itinerary to a degree. And it is tough um, when a the GM is like, okay, we have a story beat to get to, but I'm not going to teleport you there. So you know what you need to do. Yeah. What do you guys want to do now with the underlying implication of 
before you do the thing <laughs> that is kind of in the social contract of the game we're running. And then a player goes, I want to do the thing in the other way. And we're <laughs> never coming here. And you're like, well, okay, I'm just going to take the map and rotate it 90 degrees. Yeah. And you'll get there eventually. <laughs> but that's a good thing you I, just said, though. That's the game we're running. Right. Because that is, it's all of us together. And there's yeah. times where, like, like we'll finish up a leg of an adventure and they need to leave from the bad destination, like the dungeon, and go back to town. And I'll ask them, be like, all right, guys, do you want to do the day-by-day sleeping, night check, whatever to get to town? Or do you just want to say, you're there? Most of the time, they're like, eh, let's just get to town. We've done enough, you know, slogging and fighting, whatever. Let's just kick back. I want to sell stuff. I want to buy stuff. I want to do this. And that's great. And then even there's games where I'll ask the people before, or the players before the session, like, hey, this is what I have for the adventure. It's not much. Do we want to hammer this out? Or do you guys just want to open sandbox it? Yeah. Do you just want to just roll random encounters? I can pull shit out of my ass and we'll just do whatever. And they're like, yeah, all right. Most players are pretty chill and they don't care what you're doing at the end of the day as long as they get to have fun yeah like it it definitely i do also feel like the discourse around the topic has kind of been always inflated i've even done it in this conversation right here where it's like you know as much as we like to like rag on that thing that happens Mm -hmm. it really doesn't happen that much no it doesn't it's just it's a confirmation bias kind of thing when you've experienced it it sticks in your head so much because in that moment when you are sitting there with your players and like okay they're in, they're in the spot I wanted you to be in. I've been planning this for weeks. And then one of the players, totally innocently, not without, like, with no maliciousness in their heart, is like, oh, yeah, I had this really cool idea for a thing we should do. Come on, party, let's go do it. And you feel your blood pressure rise and your teeth clench, and you're like, it's their game, too. It's their yeah. game, too. <laughs> Gotta have fun. We're gonna yep. do it together but ah and you just want to scream (laughs) especially if you're ocd like a little ocd um it's one of those like oh god okay let's go do that guys i'm i'm sure that zippo the goblin is really more important (laughs) than stopping this elder lich from raising an army of all your families and friends from the town he's currently burning to death by the way your town but sure, Zippo the Goblin sells really good potions in the nearby city. Let's go there first. And what, like what, for a what, seven day. What kind tour. of what kind of potions are we talking about? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! So does he I got, got does a, he got elixirs also? Yeah. <laughs> and my favorite is when like the players really like a character or really like a they really like a vendor, and they really want that vendor to be there. <laughs> And so, like, they want to go to them for everything. And I am I had this actually happen in another game. So it, this is one of the first times I ran Legacy. And again, it's a sci-fi opera setting, folks. It's not D&D, but there's enough that you'll, you'll get it. So my players were all playing these super awesome transhuman mercenaries who pilot mechs, and it was really cool. And they were always looking for folks to sell them good gear. And there was a guy who was just kind of like the company salesman for the company they worked for. Who would, like, sell them, like, average-level gear? Like, starter equipment yeah. for their mechs. And he would help them, like, reload their ammunition, that kind of thing. But he kind of had a threshold of how far he could go. But they really loved him. 
that he was like their one of their favorite NPCs, and he, they would always stop back and be like, "So, can we get this linear cannon designed for a starship, but built down for a twenty foot tall mech to carry? And can you custom tool the rounds for it? We only need four hundred of them." And and the character would be like, "Guys, I operate out of like my garage. I I work at a Kinko's for my day job." <laughs> you need an industrial house to do this yeah. and they're like but but what if we if we gave you a tip like and helped and they're like i literally can't i can recommend you to the other guy and eventually i just had to sort of i had to sort of keel over to their desire to really want to work with this character and i was like fine eventually he just agreed to sell his business to that company they need to work with and then he ended up being the representative that they would interact with and they're like, we're so glad we're still buying from him. He's like, I'm really not, don't, you're not buying from me anymore. I, <laughs> but I appreciate the thought. <laughs> Please fill out your survey card with five stars. Yeah, so right. Get a raise. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and and that happens in so many other games where you have like a loved character. Yeah. And they just, they just want to interact with them. And you're like, I literally pulled this character out of my ass, guys. That yeah. He is puddle deep. I have like nothing. I'm rolling on tables to see what his backstory is. This is John, and he lost his arm to a demon from an attack 30 years ago that claimed his family, and that's all random generated table. Yeah. Don't ask me what his wife's name was or where they're buried. God help me, please. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so what was this demon war 30 years ago? Are there like remnants? Where are the battlefields? Are there any artifacts that were lost? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like it's, I want side quests. Yeah, that that is one of the things that I've tried to work out, and I know for a fact when I've been working on the game and writing it, a lot of it has been me answering those things I've come into contact with them. Like, and this is a so this is a me thing that got into the game, not in other players, a me. Whenever I play D and D, I love the magic items I come across. It doesn't matter how crappy they. Plus one, plus one long sword. I'm like this sword. This sword is my Excalibur. And it's like, that is a plus one magic sword. Uh, you can literally buy them at, at the next town at a magic vendor. It costs a lot, but you, they're not uncommon. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, look, man, I just ground for eight hours to get this thing. Please don't invalidate this cool thing I finally got. Um, and so one of the things I always wanted to do in D&D &D was craft or improve my magic items. How many movies or like books have you read where a player or like a main character gets this seemingly innocuous thing and by the end of the book it's a godhead it's, yeah it's Chekhov's gun and you want that you want that thing that gets more powerful but Dungeons and Dragons really makes that difficult they do like if if you want to make a plus one longsword and even just a plus two longsword it might literally take you a year of in-game crafting mm -hmm. and like hundreds of platinum pieces worth of material to get like even a mediocre benefit it was so actually really, it was yeah. easier to craft in a third edition because yeah. third edition they had all the crafting rules there it's like oh you can make a thousand gp worth of value a day like yeah i think it was a thousand i think it was and, and it makes sense too like and i understand like that some things you wouldn't be able to do until you're higher level yeah but the, the yeah because they had the spell requirements 
Right. And like the current edition just sort of brute forces it by going like, it's not tied to level. It's literally time and money, Yeah. but it's an insane degree of both. Mm -hmm. And also having access to facilities. So if you want to make a plus three longsword, you have to have a wizard's tower, a choir of, a choir of clerics, 17 million GP or something like that, and a year of dedicated work, eight hours a day. Yeah. So you mean I need to retire my character yeah. for a year for him to come back with a plus two longsword that he's made? And so in Legacy, I intentionally went and made a, a weapon crafting system, and I literally call it Forging Your Excalibur. There you go. So that if you if you really like the idea of like, I start this game with this pistol. Mm -hmm. I really like this pistol. It's not even a good one. It's just like my character has an affinity for it. Can I tool it up? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Throw it on the weapon bench. Spend a couple hundred credits every once in a while. Add a sight. Increase the size. But by the time you're done with it, probably won't even be the same gun. You'll have literally swapped out every piece. Yeah. But it'll still be your thing that you could build. And I want it to be accessible from the beginning. So that even if a player just goes like, I kind of like this pistol. I have a sentimental connection to it. It's nothing rational, but I kind of want to make it better. I'm like, cool. Spend like 50 current and you can strap on like a laser sight and a scope. Yeah. And you get a minor mechanical benefit, but it feels earned. And I like that kind of thing. Yeah, that's, uh, there's two two things that, that, that uh, came to mind. One was back in 2002. <laughs> Might have been 2001. <laughs> so like 20 years ago, uh, I was playing oh, in a God. I was playing in a friend's game, and he had made uh, ancestral items. He did a whole homebrew of it. So we all picked an item. Everyone picked weapon. I picked armor, <laughs> and it started out as a masterwork because that was a requirement back then. So it was a masterwork plus one, whatever. And then every time you leveled up, you'd roll a d4 on a one it gained something and then you would go through all these tables that it could be it oh, gains a plus cool. one it gains an ability and it wasn't just like armor abilities it could be weapon abilities spell abilities wondrous item abilities so i think like by the end at level 23 i had like plus i think it was plus seven mithril breastplate with like heal three times per day slick so it gave me bonuses to hide bonuses to to move silently because that was a thing back then and then it had psionic pluses because they were separate oh back then it had dr it had all this crazy stuff but it was like 23 levels and like almost three years of game for my armor to like ancestrally evolve i had no choice other than rolling dice but i loved that but then yeah, what you that that armor will always be something you remember. Yeah, you'll you'll be like eighty years from now, be like, I remember when oh, I my had put armor. an ancestral armor. That was amazing. I worked for three years together, and your friends were like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Shut up, Jim. It was yeah. a great campaign. <laughs> but then, like the the player who has like maybe their grandfather's sword, and it's nothing special. It was just their grandfather's, and they want their character to have that. I do like that in like Pathfinder Second Edition that they have runes. Where it's like, oh, here's a plus one rune. Boop. Now my sword is plus one. Like, it's that simple. Yeah, and I, I think that, I mean, it's not, because that's really what a lot of players want, is yeah. customization. There's a reason why so many players are like, can I get this item but skin it as this? Mm -hmm. Just like go, okay, sure, it's a hammer. It's a double-sided hammer. Yeah. But maybe can I count it as a double-sided sword? Or like, say, a chain comma, so I can mm -hmm. get the benefit of reach. Yeah, well, I mean... 
it's why we do it. We do it because in our heads, we have this very specific vision for a character. And the GM doesn't want to step on that. Yeah. Like, I guarantee you there's not a game master in the world that doesn't love when people make fun, cool, interesting characters. Yep. As long as they're not literally derailing the campaign and, you know, assuming the GM isn't okay with that. Yeah. Like, the number of folks that are like, yeah, I don't mind the Gordrar, the Stoic, marching next to Hamlet the, fi- Hamlet the Thin-Fisted, who throws goblin bombs at people, and the goblins explode by farting. Like, you know, <laughs> sure, it's immature, but everyone at the table gets a laugh out of it, including yeah. the GM, let's have fun with it. Um, literally, again, to go back to Critical Role, Sam Regal has made his critical role, his critical role career on creating characters that seem like jokes, that start off as as comic relief, and by the end of the campaign, they're the emotional heart of the game, and yeah. you're like, "Why am I crying over this character that literally pelvic thrusts to create magic? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't, but I I am," and that's the sign of a good character. And that's the sign of a good GM and a good player relationship is giving a player the freedom to do what they want and make it something that's theirs, even if it's not that serious. And then the player respecting GM and the game enough to eventually evolve that character into something that everyone's going to love, including themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I can't even begin to think of how many games have started off with, like, how the hell is this party of clowns going to get anything done? We can't, yeah. we can't even fit in the clown car, let alone do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the game, like, man, I'm going to forever miss that random person yep. who started off the campaign with, like, banana cream pieing my face. Yeah, yeah, you it's all nice. become fast friends. Yeah. And, and that's that really right there is the purity of the game system, of, like, of role-playing at its heart. Is it what it really is? Is just hanging out with friends. Yeah, it's just the mechanism by which you want to do it, and it's the reason why every party of every party of characters always will form some form of really strong relationship: love, hate, frenemies, whatever. Yeah. By the end of the campaign, you're all gonna have an excuse to go and have like a bar scene, a, a hot tub scene, or a beach scene, <laughs> and likely also like a really awesome stand in front of Mordor scene. Yeah. At the end. And you're all going to do it side by side and you're not going to poop on each other because you really want to win and you really want to have fun. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, touching back on Critical Role, if they had gone with a different game system like Pathfinder, you think Pathfinder would now be the domination of like the TTRPG scene? That's an interesting question. Um, Because from what I know, I'm not. I've I've never watched Critical Role. I know very little of them. I'm probably you know one of like five people on Twitter. It's it (laughs) for what it's worth. uh, Anyone out there listening, if you uh, because yeah, Critical Role is all over Twitter and everyone talks about it endlessly. Like everyone has watched every episode. I haven't watched every episode. I watched a large part of the first season. I watched the beginning of the second season about half, uh, not even halfway, like two thirds of the way into the beginning like maybe 10 to, eight, 10 to 11 episodes, it is a huge commitment of time. Yeah. It is perfectly reasonable to be like, it sounds cool, it looks cool, I'll just watch, like, I don't watch it, I don't have time, or it doesn't interest me. It's fine, you're yeah. valid, you're good. Because um, I know they're like almost like pilot episode, or, you know, like their initial start was like a birthday game, and yeah. they played Pathfinder. Yeah, um, The so yeah, the original 
So Critical Role, everyone's used to what it is now, which is D&D 5th Ed. Yeah. Um, but it used to be, in its in its original days, it didn't even, like, broadcast on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It was just, like, a little thing that occasionally would pop up on their Twitter feeds or pop up on, like, I think, uh, like, their, I, I don't sure if it was, like, TikTok. It wasn't TikTok at the time, but something the equivalent. Um, and, like, you would just see clips of them, like, hey, we're playing D&D together, or we're playing Pathfinder and this campaign. Um, and if they stuck with it, yeah, I, I, I will admit, I think, I'm not sure it would have made it the dominant, but I think it would have given us a console war situation. Hmm. Cause like right now, like, uh, the, the whoever's out there who doesn't know about the console war, I don't know where you've been living for 20 years, <laughs> but yeah, like you have the idea of major companies that have competing things yeah. working against each other. What's the difference between an Xbox, a PlayStation, and a Nintendo Switch? Well, it's really just the companies behind them. Mechanically, like, there's a certain point where my box can cram so many numbers, they're the same. Yeah. Um, everything else is aesthetic. And so it's the same thing I feel like with D&D and Pathfinder. If they had gone with Pathfinder, made Critical Role succeed was not the system. In fact, very little of the system makes it into their games. Mm-hmm. It's actually the storytelling and the fact that you have a cast of like literally 10 of the most preeminent voice actors of our age all playing together. I think that would have lifted Pathfinder well and above into the spotlight on par with possibly exceeding uh, Dungeons & Dragons. If that would have made them the preeminent, I don't know because D&D literally has like 50 plus years of history to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Kind of in the same way that the grim dark scene is always going to be dominated by Call of Cthulhu and Warhammer 40k. Yeah. Like that, there's never going to be an age where folks are like grim dark, and the first words out of it will be the 41st millennium. You know, like yeah. that's how it's going to be. Um, but because there was I a time where Pathfinder was like really dominating the market. That was also because D and D was in fourth ed. Yeah, and like I think it is. You know, so much of what makes things rise and fall in popularity is circumstance as well. Fourth edition D&D was a huge calculated risk on Wizards of the Coast's part. I personally, I didn't enjoy it very much. Mm-hmm. But I understand exactly the people it would appeal to. Yeah. All my friends are, table, are tabletop war gamers and role players. We've all played 40k. We played, we played War Machine until the game literally became so toxic we couldn't, we couldn't play it anymore. <laughs> Um, we all played Warmer Fantasy Battles until it literally died because GW literally blew up the planet and mm-hmm. remade the universe. And now I play Age of Sigmar. I love Age of Sigmar. <laughs> Fantastic. I actually, you know, Longstone was like, what am I going to do? I have an old, I have an old lizard man army. I'm going to make it into a Seraphon army. And I did that. And then I was like, you know, I really want to collect Stormcast. <laughs> I like them. Everyone hates ground Marines, but yeah. I love them. And so, yeah, I made a, my current Age of Sigmar army is actually a storm host of uh, my own custom storm host. And I'm really loving it. But yeah, like, so all of us are into competitive tabletop gaming a lot. And as a result, a lot of my friends liked 4th Ed. Because for them, it's basically a tabletop war game yeah. with World of Warcraft style macros yep. that's all about resource management in combat. It's less of a action. It's less of a fantasy simulator or a fantasy role-playing experience as much as it is a fantasy combat simulator 
or a high fantasy combat simulator. And if you like that, great. A lot of folks who were in D&D, though, didn't. And honestly, I feel that Wizards of the Coast's biggest mistake was selling it as D&D. Mm -hmm. I think what they should have done was gone like, this isn't D&D, this is D&D. Like, this is, this is Dungeons and Dragons Arena or mm -hmm. something like that as an offshoot series. This is our tactical war game simulator for Dungeons and Dragons delving encounters. We have an extremely complex system for like dungeon building, and we will give you all the components for really fun, hardcore, grindy dungeon adventures for you hardcore badass players who remember the mountains of madness of the old days or whatever. That would have worked. But the fact that they went from 3.5, one of the fluffiest... And while crunchiest, let's be real, how much of 3.5's rules actually factored into our games? They gave you miles of rules yeah. that most folks just straight up disregarded yeah. for lack of relevance. And when you're making a character, you're like, all right, let me grab my 20 source books to flip through. Right, exactly. And you'd maybe use two. Yeah. Maybe. No, I'd, I'd use like one thing from each book. Well, I need that feat yeah. from there. I need that skill feat. From, I need this from there. What you'd really use yeah. is a Xeroxed copy of the pages you need <laughs> yeah. with a staple holding it all together, and all your books would sit at home. Or, like, you'd take them there only for FAQ or errata purposes. Mm -hmm. And so they went from a game that's very much soft on combat, so much so that fighters literally to this day continue to be buffed, because in 3.5, the combat rules were soft enough where fighters literally couldn't compete with people who would call fireballs from the sky because yeah. they couldn't fight enough yeah. um, to compensate. And so nowadays, like, so yeah, fourth ed came out and it was not what anyone wanted, at least not anyone in the D and D space. wanted. Mm -hmm. And it attracted a bunch of new folks to the hobby, but it basically pissed everyone off. The only reason Pathfinder exists because so many people were so insanely upset about yeah. fourth ed that literally a company said, we're just going to reprint 3.5. Yeah. And we're just going to call it something else. So that way, when, when Wizards of the Coast stops selling you these source books, we have them for you. Yeah. And then second edition Pathfinder is basically a parallel evolution of fifth ed D&D, where they just went in different directions, but it was the same idea. We're going to take 3.5 and improve it so that it's playable. Yeah, Pathfinder's second, like, I, I was flipping through the fourth edition D&D book the other day, because mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't looked at this in a while, and I'm flipping through it, and I'm like, oh, man, this is a lot like second edition Pathfinder, mm -hmm. and then I realized, like, oh, they took a lot of stuff from fourth ed, all your different class abilities, the way yeah. combat kind of works, but it is funny that fourth ed is more like chainmail, like the original D&D, because, I mean... Gygax originally wanted a war game, and then Arneson was like, hey, well, you know, what if we have heroes out of the war game? Boom, D&D, &D. and that's literally what 4th Ed was. It's more war gamey with heroes, which is, yeah, that was pretty much like, what, Warcraft 3? Warcraft 3 yeah. was that. <laughs> it's, I mean, literally, it's Defense of the Ancients. Which became, yeah, well, yeah, became Dota. Yeah. And mm -hmm. That's yeah, the biggest game ever. <laughs> Right, like that's literally fourth ed is the tabletop version of that. The difference is that with a video game, you can have a computer running all those tables yes. and keeping track of all that stuff for you. But in fourth ed, and this for me is my spiciest take on fourth ed. So brace yourself. Um, my spiciest take on fourth ed is that there is nothing that they did in fourth edition that was not a good idea 
it was that doing it all at once was a terrible idea mm-hmm. because the i like all the mechanics weren't a bad thing i remember playing the game being like in combat this is great yeah. and even in role playing like you just are role playing you just don't have much mechanical support for it but yeah. it really didn't change much from 3.5 i didn't have much mechanical support back then either um what is the difference is that at lower levels the game feels great yeah or at least like at level one two and three it's fine you you never feel overwhelmed by your options yeah you hit level four and five and you start getting your prestige classes and you start having now not one or two or three abilities you use at random you have like literally two pages of one-off use abilities that you have to maintain every day mm-hmm. it's like everyone in the game became the most complex wizard imaginable and so in a in a video game it's great because that's just a cooldown mechanic yep. they just gray out the icon until you can use it again but if you're doing it on in a game that's reliant on humans to play yep and you have the worst part is having human error happen yeah and you're like i use this ability oh crap i already used that today damn so we need to undo that well wait as the gm just pops i'm like wait a second there's like 18 synergistic interactions that happen as a result of that like four people burned their abilities and this character used its ability to counter your ability fuck where were we five minutes ago and (laughs) it's it's a lot yeah that was the downside with their like for uh they their daily powers and counter powers and then like free powers i remember it was green red and gray were the color scheme yeah yeah, the, and it worked. Like it worked well. Yeah, green, green, red, gray slash bluish. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, there was blue also. And, and then, then there was like an underlying, like there were passive abilities that would just stick around. Yeah. As well. I and then there was different tier. Those... I remember they broke it down to tiers. Also, you had your like hero tier, paragon tier, and whatever, which is the same as like Pathfinder Two E having their trained expert, master, legendary levels. Yeah. So I'm like, I was looking at the Dragonborn for 4E, and I think it said their breath weapon. And this is this is one of the reasons that I think it uh, definitely doesn't appeal to a lot of people nowadays. Is it said that their, I think it was their breath weapon, is they gave it like three different options for what ability you could use when attacking with your breath weapon. It was like 2 plus con, or 2 plus dex, or 2 plus intelligence, or whatever yeah. it was. And I'm like, dude, that's way too much. That's way too Everything much. Everything in 4th Ed reads like a formula, reads like an algebra problem. Yeah. There's, and you know, if you're good at algebra, if you like math, it's fine. I do love math. If you, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I will admit a personal aversion to a degree of math. Um, I'm good at math. Yeah. I trained as a mechanical engineer, and then I got about two-thirds of the way through the program, and I realized, oh, God, I'm going to have to do all this math, and it's not even going to be to build things I want to build. No. It's to help someone else build the thing. I'm going to be the guy sitting in a cubicle with a calculator yep. and an Excel spreadsheet, cramming the numbers for some other guys. Fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah. So that's why it makes sense. And pe- uh, I know people complain about it all the time, but that's why it makes sense. Like, a wizard, it's intelligence across the board. Clerics, yeah. it's wisdom across the board. One ability. You don't want to have too many. And that's, right. that's why I, I think it was smart for 5th edition to go with, like, your spell attack relies on your spellcasting ability because it sucked in third edition when you're playing a wizard and you're like well now i need good decks if i want range touch attacks oh but i need if i'm doing melee touch attacks i need decent melee because 
that matters apparently. There were no dump stats in fourth ed. Like, not really. No. There was, like, depending on your character, maybe there might be one. Maybe. But the game will occasionally punish you for using it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, like, fifth ed, or even 3.5, or in other game systems entirely, yeah, you can wholeheartedly pour all your points into, like, one stat or a couple yeah. stats and thematically follow it, and there's a way for you to succeed doing that. But fourth ed will totally punish you if you're a fighter and your dex is low. Oh, yeah. And your opponent's like, I'm going to cast this fourth level daily ability that if it goes off and you fail your dex save with disadvantage and a further minus two, I will literally rip you out of this plane and throw you through hell. And if you survive on the other end, you are permanently deranged till the day your character dies mm-hmm. or seeks like an eighth level spell of healing. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm a fighter. Yeah. Take a guess how high my deck stat is. <laughs> Let me roll it out. Oh, cool. I died. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Good game. You yeah. want to play another campaign? <laughs> and that was, I remember forums for 4E where it was literally like, it was like following a guide for an online game. Where yeah. like, oh, if you follow this build with your rogue, I, th- I think it was rogue and warlock were like the top two damage dealers when it first came out. It's like, oh, you know, before third level, you're doing 100 damage around. And I'm just like, oh my God. I'm like, now I need to look out for this as a DM. This sucks. Yeah, min-maxing is, that is a thing too. Um, so uh, I, spicy take on min-maxing. I actually don't find it a problem under non-like non, most circumstances. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really bother me. Yeah, like, the worst thing you're going to do is, oh, man, you overkilled that kobold so yeah. hard. Yeah. Like, that random, that random pirate with a handgun who really wasn't going to pose much of a problem to you, you totally <laughs> smashed him. Way to go. The worst thing I do is I add more bodies yep. or I counter that some other way. But my goal is to make combat engaging and fun. And if a player really gets into that, yeah. that's how they enjoy the game is by making the big numbers happen. And that makes the good, the happy juice flow in their brain. Yeah. Cool. I'm all about it. It only becomes a problem when it steps on other players' fun yes. or encroaches on their ability to yep. interact. If you have a player who's a warlock who's like, yes, I have a spell for literally every solution, I cast it relentlessly, and everyone else just use the help action occasionally, we'll get through it. Yeah. It feels bad, um, but that rarely ever happens. And 4th Ed made it happen so much. Mm-hmm. It was so bad for that. Um it's one of the things that I, it's my biggest hatred of wargaming and the thing that's driven me the furthest from it. I, I used to play occasionally the odd competitive game of 40k or Warmer Fantasy. I don't at all anymore unless it's a very small size tournament because the prevalence of power gaming mm-hmm. in wargaming is so extremely skewed. It makes a lot of those games just not fun. Yeah. Um, and the higher your points value, the, the bigger a game gets in these systems, the more extreme the examples become until you're like, I put my army on the table. And you're like, oh, I actually don't get to put my army on the table because you've abused a mechanic that allows you to deploy your entire army in my deployment zone. <laughs> so I can't put dudes within six <laughs> inches of you and my entire table is covered. I have no minis on the table, therefore I lose. Yeah. And even if I manage to squeeze one or two things in, you instantly annihilate me. Yeah. Or some other mechanic where it's like, I get to deploy. First turn, you get. You charge me. I disappear under a wave of dice. 
well, that was a fun way to waste 30 minutes and my time. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's like uh, my buddy had a, a magic deck back in the day where you lost before you even took your turn. Oh, my Like, you God. lost during your upkeep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I th- That right there, that's the reason I never played the first, ru- the first run of Yu-Gi-Oh! was I had a friend who was really into Yu-Gi-Oh! And he's like, you want to play with me? And I'm like, sure. And he's like, look at this video. This is a thing that can happen. And so it was it was Pot of Greed. Okay. So if anyone out there follows TTRPG, or not TTRPG, but uh, follows like collecting card games and knows the original Pot of Greed mechanic in Yu-Gi-Oh!, you know what I'm talking about. It's just a card that goes, you play it, you discard this card, and you discard some cards, you draw more from your hand, and you draw more and you put it directly in your hand. And then you draw another card and instantly play it. And so you're going to be like, just pot of greed, pot of greed, pot of greed. Cool, I have Exodia, I win on turn one. Yeah. I have all five pieces. Your interaction with my deck has been nothing. Yeah. Good game. And everyone else is like, I'll be set up in five turns. Yeah. Okay. Like, I hate I, I hate and love those kind of decks. Mm-hmm. They're cool to see function once. Yes, once. And then you're like, put it away. If it ever, <laughs> If I ever see it again... I will have words with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it won't be a matter of the game. It'll be a matter of you and me having a personal issue with you wasting my time. Um, and yeah, that that definitely was a problem in Fourth Ed, was that you could have a player character built so well, they completely negate the need for a party. Yeah. So much so, it affects everyone else's ability to play. Or a player character could have the reverse built so poorly mm-hmm. it negates their need to be in combat at all yeah and in fact hinders the party because their presence increases the challenge rating of the encounter <laughs> and the difficulty so they actually would do you a favor by never leaving town yeah and just staying there and being like you stay here stay safe we'll be back later with smaller encounters and better loot yeah bye and it feels bad you really can't have joke characters in 4th edition. You have to crunch them to a degree. And God forbid you fr- you forget the important mechanic of your characters. Yeah. Like, if you misplay, you can misplay in 4th ed. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the problem right there. Because it is, it is wargaming. Can... It's like playing yeah. chess. When you are, like, pushing, pulling, sliding, you're moving pieces around the battle mat. Like, if you mess yeah. up, like, oh, whoop, now you're dead. Yeah, and not just that. Then you... And you kind of wasted everyone's time a yeah. bit at the table, and it feels bad. It feels bad when you're the reason four characters die, and they work really hard, mm-hmm. and you just didn't grasp the math on your character right, or you forgot an important synergy. And a good party will let it slide, yeah. but it's going to make everyone have a slightly less fun time. Um, yeah, that's why yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of everyone in the party should fill like a necessary role. I'm that old, right. like old schooler, where I like to see a party of like fighter, rogue, wizard, cleric, because it covers like the four bases. And I think when there's things in five E, like everyone can heal, it's like, what's the point of having a cleric? Everyone can heal, right? And like most five E games that I ran, the party's like, all right, we cleared these two rooms, nap time. Yeah, all oh right, let's get back up. I'm like, oh, short rests. I hate them so much. My lizard folk, ha- my my lizard folk warlock hexblade, was notorious for being an absolute, an absolute metric, the standard by which my party <laughs> slaughtered was measured, followed by a two and a half hour nap. Yeah, 
and then immediately going back into it. So the game would be like absolute slaughter fest. Let's have a chill time, guys. Yeah. Slaughter fest. And there was no in between. There was like no chill in that game. My my crocodile was either sleeping or he was slaying, and there was no in between. <laughs> and yeah, no, I, I feel that. And uh like even in games that don't have those roles, mm-hmm. like uh again, I always reference it back to because that's the thing I have that I can immediately reference. Legacy doesn't have classes. Mm-hmm. It is a build your own character kind of thing. Yeah. So you build every aspect of it. Um, but I do have what I call careers, which are kind of like putting the bumpers on a on a bowling alley for players who are really used to class-based systems and they're not really comfortable with doing that solely by themselves. Cool. You can be a soldier and that sort of just tells you like, hey, this is a way to build a character around mm-hmm. this. Want to be an engineer, you can build a character around this. And I kind of had them vaguely built around that, like, these each fill necessary roles. And I have them not even just in combat, but out of combat. Like, I know a big issue I've seen in a lot of fifth ed parties is there's no one who's really good at communicating. Yeah. Like, at all. You have, like, this team here can literally kill God yeah. and come back with his hand, and they'll be fine. But ask them to stand in front of an audience of 20 people and communicate what mm-hmm. the town. And you basically just created an opportunity for players to relentlessly fail. And so, like, one of the things I have is the negotiator. Just so I can be like, hey, guys, don't forget, this is a role-playing game. Maybe talking to people is important, too. Yes. And mechanically, in the in terms of combat, too, because of the fact that the game, for me, in my game setting, it's a sci-fi setting. Mm-hmm. And a... A near as a relatively near realism setting. I want it to be closer to science than fantasy. Um, so, one of the things that I have is that a lot of the sapient life forms, and even like non sapient, like flora and fauna, it's gonna fight to a point and then they're just gonna run. Yeah. Like, nine times out of ten, a band of brigands will only try to kill you and take your stuff in a medieval setting if it's worth it. Yeah. And if they charge at somebody with, like, a sharpened butter knife from their town wrapped in a leather handle that they made out of their belt because they're basically poor and they're trying to get a little money and then the guy they're going to rob turns around wearing a purple velvet robe with gold (laughs) trim and unleashes crackling arcane lightning between his hands. All right, Gandalf, I'm gone. You can keep whatever it is. I'll wait. Yeah, I'll wait for someone to come by I can steal from. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and having those five guys go to ground and absolutely fight like they're all Rambo is not, to me, that isn't necessary. No. So in Legacy, I have it where the negotiator can literally, is sort of positioned there as like the, this is how combat ends character. Mm-hmm. Everyone else does all the crazy, cool, badass stuff and probably kills the characters commanding the enemies. But then when you're just left with chumps, the negotiator is the guy who comes in and goes, okay, who wants to live? We're accepting bribes or the door is right there. But if you stay, we're definitely going to kill you. We can talk it out. I'm your only way out of this. And it, it helps a lot. It reminds characters, hey, you also don't need to be murder hobos. Yeah, It's fun to play the war game, but it's also fun to play the role-playing game. And mercy is, in and of itself, a really cool thing to experience in the game. Like, literally 80% of my players' characters, my players' like support characters on their ships, end up being NPCs they spare. Like, reliably. Literally, they're one of my crew's sergeant at arms for the starship protecting the security of their starship. 
was a guy who worked for a big bad they fought. That's awesome. Yeah, and the funny thing was they didn't even kill the big bad themselves. It was the it was the weirdest encounter. They were breaking into this room that was basically this big bad like re like rebellion leader. He was trying to overthrow a small breadbasket world. And so he had a bunch of like militants ready to overthrow the world in his name and basically create a dictatorship. And so he was sitting up there with a bunch of guys in badass armored hard suits with acid throwers for weapons. And one of my party members was like, okay, I have an idea. And they snuck in and kind of were like, I'm here behind the big bad. And the guys in the hard suits turned around and fired at him, hope not remembering that their boss was in the path of their flamethrower. <laughs> and he got caught by four templates of acid damage while that player <gasps> managed to leap out of the way. And so this boss, I've been setting up for this fight. He had a grenade launcher, some decent armor. He had a huge pool of health, instantly melted into sludge. Like full-on <laughs> full on RoboCop toxic waste guy, instant death. And it was really alarming for me because I was like, oh... Well, that changed the dynamic of this encounter entirely. They wrapped with the two guys in the mechs because they were willing to fight. And then the the one, like, the two kids that were there protecting him because he drew, like, most of his bodyguards from, like, 18, 20-year-old disaffected youth from the town, from the city. Mm -hmm. um, like, one of them was at the end of the firefight just, like, clutching his gun, like, I'm not going to shoot because it was an instant <laughs> death. And they're like, you deserve a better class of leader. And I imagine he's not paying you well. We have a starship in need of security officer. And also, we could really use your help dismantling this organization. What if we paid you dental? He's like, I'm sold. I'm on. And he just like <laughs> went with them. And by the end of the campaign, he was one of the supporting characters that helped them escape from like a major event in the game. They literally wouldn't have won like the defining battle of the end of that campaign if that guy hadn't been left behind to hold the fort and keep their ship on Overwatch to get them out of there. It's cool stuff like that, that it's born from mercy. It's cool to have trophies. I think it's even cooler to have, like, new friends that are basically walking trophies to how cool your party is. That's awesome. In me. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a great idea for uh, someone to use in any sort of game. Like, I always love the appeal of a home base, you know, for your party to have. And if you go to your home base and it's literally like, hey, there's Jacob, you know, the brigand yeah. that we spared and helped take down the Thieves Guild. Like, hey, what's up, Jacob? How's it going? Holding down the fort, sir. Like, I'm a huge proponent of that. Like, building bases and, and building relationships, too, is a huge thing. Yeah. And, like, one of the, the three things out of the gate that I ask for as a player in a campaign or I seek out as a player in a campaign, I, I want a weapon that's my own. Mm -hmm. I don't care what it is. I don't care how crappy it is. I name every stupid sword I get. Even if it's a dusty old rusty long sword. I'm like, this sword. The name in Elvish is this, this, this. It was, and I can track it. Because it's a thing. I, I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. I suffer from Tolkien syndrome. I, I, I don't want any blade of grass to not be cool in my character's eyes. Yeah. And it helps my immersion. The second thing is I want a base and transport for the mm -hmm. third. So, like, first thing I'll be like is, okay, how much is a cart and mules? Yep. How soon can we get the cart and mules? Second, then after that, it's a chest to keep mm -hmm. money in. Then after that, it's barrels to get commerce going. So I can be like, we're going from this town to this town. Hey, what do they need in the next town? I yeah. hear they need carrots. Cool. How many carrots are in the market? How much can I buy? Can I, can I make the market a little bit happy today with my adventurer's goal? 
And then eventually it's, hey, how much is a cheap, like, worn-out old will, like windmill or an abandoned outpost or something? <laughs> like, my character at level three has these epic visions of the future. And I love feeding characters that kind of thing. Any game mechanic that helps that. Like uh, Matt Colville's uh, Stronghold rules. Mm-hmm. I love those. Those are the coolest thing. It gets players so invested, and then populating them with people you've interacted with, yeah, with inter- with like characters you've saved, yeah, because you've saved them from yourself, yeah, but you did, yeah. <laughs> it's a huge thing. I love it. Yeah, if you save oh, a God. family from like a bunch of rampaging trolls and their farm is destroyed in the process, be like, hey, I got this windmill. Right. You want you want to set up shop there? Yeah, like, we can offer really you protection. Of food. Yeah. Right. Like if we need food, we can offer you protection. Yeah, yeah, sounds like the mafia, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> uh, I am going to say this in defense of this, at least in a fantasy setting, you're playing feudalism the game usually. Yeah. Like, all you're doing is making a new form of feudalism. For us modern players who for whom feudalism is not a thing we want to return to, yeah. it does feel a little gross. But in that era... It's not that bad. Yeah. It's, it gets a pass. It's okay. <laughs> it's a fantasy Just, world. It's not as bad as real life. Yeah, don't do it to real people and you'll be good. Yeah. And be nice to your NPCs and be a benevolent king and you're good. Yeah, you're fine. Um, we believe in fantasy. That's why we're playing it. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, man. That was a good English muffin. Sorry, I just finished breakfast. <laughs> oh, no worry. I, I slammed a couple uh, muffins before I started. I need something. I got you, yeah. Oh. oh, man. Was there anything else? Because I'm, I'm willing to... I can riff more. Whatever works. I don't know. I'm trying to think. I'm thinking of, like, different hot uh, topics that were on the Twitterverse recently. I know the whole fudging dice was, like... Fudging dice. Fudging yeah. dice came up, and then it went crazy to, like, limbo levels. And I, like, glimpsed it for a second, and I'm like... Just gonna walk away from that one. I don't want to be a part it, of that noise. It's it's a tough conversation. Um, and again, I think it speaks really, really hard to how difficult the Twitterverse can make talking about these kind of things. Yes, because I've never had a conversation with a player about that topic that hasn't been entirely amicable. Yeah, and like I've never had a player go like, "Fuck you, you're ruining the hobby. How dare you?" Yeah, like. It's a, it's a dice game. Yeah. I, as a GM, am more invested in my players enjoying the story than can I murder you with dice. Yeah. Because here's a big, uh, the hottest take I got on that. As a GM, I don't have a dice pool to worry about. If I want to kill you, I can get as many dice as mm-hmm. I want and literally dump them on the table and say, a rock fell and you died. Yeah. If the argument is, can you beat the GM? No, you absolutely <laughs> cannot. The GM is not here to prove anything to you. He can and absolutely, they can absolutely decimate you at a whim. The mark of a good GM is to avoid an adversarial relationship. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to do that is to respect the player's time commitment. And for me, as a player, nothing disrespects a, like, as a player and a GM, nothing disrespects my time more than an encounter the GM didn't really plan for, that wasn't really relevant to the story, mm-hmm. mine or the campaigns, that was filled with a bunch of trash mobs, instantly ending my life 
after I spent hours of crafting a character. Yeah. That feels like crap, no matter yeah. who you are. And every person who goes to ground defending that experience, I gotta say, have you experienced it? Because yeah. I have, and it, it sucks. Yeah. And if I could go my entire life without having an unnecessary party death to random kobold number four, mm -hmm. who's just really weirdly good at his job today, <laughs> I would be fine with that. And I understand the fudging dice because oftentimes people think about it in terms of an adversarial thing. They think about it in terms of, oh, it feels like cheating when my opponent chooses what their dice are. Nine times out of ten, it's choosing what the dice are to the benefit of the player. Yeah. They're very rarely buffing the stats on their boss. And if they are, it's usually for the benefit of the players to have a more enjoyable experience than... I accidentally created a complete pushover and you guys have been building up to this for four weeks and it's going to be over in two turns and half of you aren't even going to get to fight. Yeah. That's going to suck. So yeah, I, I'm going to take the stat line of a monster and maybe make it a little bigger as yeah. need be. Yeah, I don't know how many times, like there's been times where I am <clears throat> just like rolling for the creature's turn and I'll roll the hit and I... Maybe I didn't, I don't know how many hit points they have left. Maybe they didn't announce it. They're secretly taking damage, you know? Right, yeah. And I, like, I'll like roll, and they're like, oh, I'm dead. I'm like, uh, what? Like, yeah. yeah. I'm like, well, you didn't say anything to the rest of the party. You didn't announce. Like, I, I can track as much as I can, but I can't track, like, a field right. of enemies and all of you, even though I try. Right. But then, like, I've also... Beyond only helps so yeah. much. <laughs> and then, like, I have players who, like, at the table, I see them roll the die, I see the result, and what they say is not the result. And I'm like, eh, is it worth, like, fighting over? If I'm like, hey, you rolled a 7, but you said 17. What the hell, man? Like, no, dude. Right. Like, is it worth getting into a fight or yeah. embarrassing that person who, honestly, if they're in a bad enough place where they're going to lie to you about a d20 roll because the effect of it might affect their character and it means that much to them that they were willing to lie yeah. to your face about it? Yeah. Even if it's just briefly? You know, at that point, if they're not hurting anyone else's fun, yeah. like, maybe I'll talk to them after and be like, hey, man, I noticed you fudged a couple of dice rolls during the game. Yeah. I get it. It's okay. Do we need to talk about like how to respect your character or is there something that's not right about them? Yeah. Do you need them to be feel a little bit more resilient? Are the encounters too difficult for you? Or maybe, or maybe like they just been having, on them? maybe they've been having a shitty day and yeah. them, them killing that, slaying that last cobalt or goblin, whatever we're picking on now, like them right, yeah. taking down that creature is going to make their whole day. Like, Oh good. My day's yeah. so much better. Work sucked. Now I feel complete for the day. Like, Give them and that. all it cost me was one imaginary yeah. token on a table that will absolutely appear again yeah. in the future. Big whoop. Like, yeah. It's just if, a if game. It's a if someone wants to fudge a die, go for it. If a player wants to do it, fine. If it becomes an issue, fine. If everyone like is getting upset by it, then maybe you know there needs to be talks about it. But right. it's because either like respecting each other's time, right? Yeah. That's and you could is. and you could do something where like maybe you have, you know, your fudge token. <laughs> Everyone, everyone so, gets three pieces yeah. of fudge. That's what we do. Everyone gets three pieces of fudge. When you eat that fudge, that's your, I'm going to fudge this number. Oh, I love that. That's what I, you do. I, I, I have, uh, there's two things I built into Legacy for that. One, 
so like actually it's just three things there's the uh, there's wild dice so like anytime you make an attribute die you have whatever you're at or an attribute roll if you're like attribute die that's determined by rank it's like a d like this is a d12 then you have a luck die which almost always uniformly a d6 unless you have like a buff that makes it better you roll them because this is an exploding die system so you choose whichever one's higher i rolled a one on my d12 but i rolled a five on my d6 i can take the d6 mm-hmm. and it makes it easier um I have rerolls baked into the game, so you have motes of you have motes of destiny. Every game, you can be like, okay, I start with three fresh at the beginning of every session. And those are just pure rerolls. I don't like my roll. I can burn a moat to do it, or I can burn a moat to do other mechanics. But that's the big thing. And if your character instantly dies, as long as they're not overkilled beyond reason, you can expend all your remaining motes to instantly stabilize them and not die. It doesn't necessarily mean that an enemy that's really spicy won't walk up and double tap you mm-hmm. that's your, that's a new problem for you yeah but like at least if you feel like oh man i got completely slayed by some random guy with a 22 magnum in my powered armor suit and he just walks on the corner and accidentally crits the crap out of me yeah okay at least you're not instantly deleted you have a fallback um and the final one i have is there's actually a trait you can take on a human character which is called Child of Tomorrow, which specifically is like your character can sort of, they have that sort of brain that lets them work things out, and they have, they're constantly running simulations in their head. So in the course of the game, they roll their, their intellect die at the very beginning of the game, and then they roll a D6, and they get that many instances during the game to replace a roll with that roll they made at the beginning of the session. So if they're like, I really hate this role, and you're like, yeah, you're child tomorrow, right? You can replace it with a 10 or like oh, a 6. I like that. And Yeah, and it gives them more dice control. Yeah. And that definitely makes a player feel, especially if they're really averse to luck. Yeah. And I've been there. Oh, yeah. I've, I've yeah. been the person who's rolled, 12, who's rolled like 12 D6s, and they're all ones. And <laughs> Everyone who's played this game has been there. And, like, if you're feeling nervous about this, if this is a character you really don't want to have that happen to, there's mechanics to do. Yeah. You can implement The fudge is such a cool idea. I like, I like that. that. I like that Especially a lot. Especially if you build it as a mechanic. Yeah. Like, and you introduce everybody to it. So it's like, hey, this is a thing. It legitimizes it. Yeah. And it doesn't make... Then you don't have to worry about the player who's like, oh, but I want the hardcore experience. You're like, yeah, the hardcore experience, and this is part of the rules. You can now use that for your hardcore experience. Yeah. And, and, and... Samantha over there who's had a really rough day and just doesn't want to lose her level 5 druid that she's really fallen in love with, she she gets a save too. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's cool. Pathfinder 2E has the hero point system where you can mm. spend a hero point to reroll or you can burn all your hero points to stabilize if you're dying. I'm really glad to see that's kind of, that kind of mechanic is spreading. Yeah. I actually, like, I made the I made the legacy one, like, I think about five years ago. And like, I'm really glad to see that like there, it's it's like cancerization, like the cra- nature the crab. of crabs out of everything. <laughs> like, it's nice to see that some of these game mechanics are like the same thing, yeah. like fudge, like fudgication is happening, where it's just like, oh yes, every system is like we realize how crappy it feels for your player character to randomly die to nothing. Yeah, here's a way to help. It's nice. Well, that's why also typically, like, uh, your player characters don't die at zero. They die yeah. either a little below or way or below. Yeah, and, like, like whereas you... most, like, most enemies, zero, they're dead. You don't yeah, do the whole dying thing. Yeah. 
yeah it's it's they're no longer relevant to you yeah is the thing um i kind of have like a soft rule in legacy whenever i'm running the game or whenever i'm running any game that if you kill an npc quote unquote unless you have specifically narrated how brutally you've dispatched them mm -hmm. i assume they have a couple like minutes to seconds yeah. of life left after the fight so if you want to do the whole thing of like where are they holding her tell me before you go yeah and like they can do the whole gasping like eh, behind the wall <laughs> you, know, you get that moment with them um or if you want you can be like i have a health potion tell me and i'll save your life and they'll be like okay it's down there please yeah i can't feel my legs no you can't i bisected you but here's <laughs> like it helps and and that's really what it is it depends on what type of game you're running right mm -hmm. like if you're running D D, most encounters the fight with fights the implication is you're expected to finish your plate yeah you will kill or end every person on the table if you're lucky yeah or creative maybe you can intimidate the end of a fight out or like try to treaty at the end of it but a lot of the times the game just kind of assumes with challenge rating you're gonna get through every part of everyone on the table you finish your greens and you get all your candy afterward mm -hmm. um but other games like call of cthulhu like or even like a d20 modern or a white wolf guns are super lethal yeah like you you don't want to fight no i don't want to fight in call of cthulhu and then some guy comes around the corner with a shotgun and decorates the pavement with me like no i'm a squishy human any person with an ice pick can instantly kill me yeah so and if you drop somebody it's a very good chance that they're in the same position they they might be instantly dead or they might just be sitting there like you hit me in the gut and it's gonna take me 15 minutes to die thanks for that man and like i think that's an interesting thing about different games too the expectation of how combat is meant to end changes dramatically like yeah, there is darkness. You don't even want to kill someone on some 10. You just want to drive them off. Yeah. There is definitely a love for those games where it is more hardcore. Like you're always on the edge of death. Like I know more like Morkborg, like their big gimmick is like, yeah. you can die before you even start. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I get it. Like, that's cool. That's a great selling point. And that's what they became right. known for. But in all reality, like if I make a character and he dies before he even lives, I'm going to be like, cool, this is. This is Sam Waters Jr. Like Yeah, exactly. I'm going to add Jr. to the end of his name. Yeah. Whoop. There we go. He's, he's just like his father. My friends had the exact same problem. Okay. So, um, you remember the old, like, uh, what, what is it called again? Uh, you know, uh, Death Watch, Dark Heresy, Fantasy Flight. The old Fantasy oh, Flight yeah, yeah. Uh, 40K games. Okay. So, one of my friends uh, ran a campaign, like a four-man campaign of... Uh, only war which is where you play as imperial guardsmen which for those of you who aren't into 40k the imperial guard are literally stormtroopers from star wars yeah. they are the good guy equivalent they're not here to live no they're the they're red here shirts to die in, yeah they are here to die in such vast numbers your opponent <laughs> literally cannot you they don't have enough ammo to kill them all they, you'll have 10 dudes and one gun for all of them. But man, that one last guy is going to be angry and have a fully loaded gun. And so um, they ended up playing as a tank crew. And so they were all in one tank operating the crew together, which is kind of cool. It was mm -hmm. an awesome idea for a campaign. And they were playing against the Tau, who are a highly advanced alien species <laughs> with insanely advanced anti-tank guns yeah. and rail guns. 
And so the first, like, literal first five minutes of the game, they're like, okay, we're throwing you right into the battle. It starts with you coming over the ridge and cresting in the open war. And there's a hammerhead downfield. And it slowly turns its turret to, to look at you. What are you guys doing? Like, okay, we load up the turret. We turn broadside. We fire multiple guns. We do a bit of damage. Hooray, we're doing great. Pop the smoke launchers. Let's go. And then, like, the, and the GM's like, okay. So he rotates his turret towards you. Just crank along. Rolls the die. Oh. Um. And he rolls more dice. And the hypersonic slug goes to the flank of your vehicle, and the suction is such that it literally turns all of you into a fine red mist out the other side across 50 feet. Because he crit you, and he crit his damage like eight times. Do you guys want to run a new campaign? <laughs> and so they literally had like a one-turn campaign. Where the first turn, they all ins they weren't even ten minutes into the campaign, and they all died. <laughs> He's like, "Do you guys want to run another?" And they're like, "You know, let's do a different yeah. system." <laughs> uh, but you're never gonna forget something like that. No, it's absolutely an ex. If you're on board for the experience, it's fun. Like if you if you're if you are on board and you're consenting and you understand that, like your characters are here for a good time mm -hmm. not a long time then yeah it's not bad yeah but if you're but like again it comes back to that thing we open with right that the expectation set by D D, the expectation is you're gonna start at level one you're gonna hopefully get to level 20 or a higher level have an epic final battle and you're going to get to see your dudes ride off into the sun and maybe one or two people might die along the way yeah but on the whole your attrition level will be lower. You're more of a Lord of the Rings party yeah. than you are like, well, what just happened to my Imperial Guard friend? Yeah. Um, and yeah, like as a result, you have people who, when you say, I want to run a tabletop role-playing game, they immediately associate that, even if they're not thinking about it. Like, even if they know full well, and they're told, like, this is a high attrition game, you are not going to live through all this. Mm -hmm. Or like Call of Cthulhu, your goal isn't even to live through all this. Your goal is to live through long enough to see the horrible thing that's going to eat yeah. your whole life and then break your mind because you're here for the sad, you're, you're here for the feels bad. Yeah. Um, even then, when that happens, it feels bad because there's that party that's like, I hoped against hope I'd get to ride off into the sunset with my happy ending. And a lot of games just that isn't that isn't even possible in most D and D games. No, I think most D and D most D and D games just kind of like, uh, hey guys, so so and so doesn't want to play anymore. We can't have the schedule. Yeah, we'll figure Real it life. out in the future. I think that's how most D and D games end is with third to fifth level characters just dust in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's it. The, the big bad evil guy from yeah. every campaign I've ever met. It isn't the big bad evil guy. Yeah, it's whatever your boss's scheduling is. That motherfucker. It's, it's having a yeah. It's <laughs> it's having a new kid. Yep. It's moving to a new state. Yeah. It's realizing that man, I'm really into World of Warcraft right now, and that's gonna be my <laughs> Saturdays, guys. I'm sorry, I just can't. I can't get my rating team to change their day. Yeah. Okay. What about everyone else? Oh, Saturday was really the only day that worked for me. Okay. It was fun playing with you guys. 
when schedules change, we'll get back together. Yeah. Which is, if you're out there listening and your GM says it, it's possible it might be true. Yeah. But nine times out of ten, those are the final words on a game. That is, that is the tombstone. The 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 the, the epitaph on the <laughs> on the plaque is. We'll see about re- re- reworking our schedule in the future. Like we'll find another day to play. Yeah. Like D and D twenty twenty one to twenty twenty four. Yeah. And that's how it goes. And I, it's it's what it is. I it's think. Not a bad uh, thing either. No, I think on that note, it's probably a good time to wrap this up. Yeah, man. Because I have work and stuff in the future in a few hours. <laughs> what a perfect segue. I know. Dude. <laughs> But this has been it's awesome. Been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. You want to do do a little shout out what you're all about and Oh man, sure. Um plug it up. So for those of you out there, I'm the last Omnitect, O M N I T E C T, and you'll spot me on Twitter. I do Twitch. I've been working on my tabletop role-playing game, Legacy Storytelling in the World Tomorrow for like 15 plus years solo, all the art, all the writing, the rules, it's all me. And I am finally in a place where I'm starting to get to the final stages of development and finishing it. So if you're ever interested in seeing what I'm doing or how it, or how it's going or when it'll be out, um, you can spot me on Twitch. I do game development and art streams and world building streams every other Saturday. And Octo- on October 2nd is our next one. So if you want to tune in at 10.30 a.m. EST, I'll be there. Sounds good. All right, man. It was good talking to you. Hopefully, we'll do it again in the future. Definitely, man. Have a good one, all right? All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.